Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more. The kind of loss that I'm talking about is the kind of loss that you would get from traveling, intentional getting lost. So this a benefit of intentionally getting lost comes from the fact that we often don't know what we're looking for. And I find that I can sort of maybe find what I'm looking for by getting a little bit lost, maybe metaphorically exploring something where you don't actually know what the end result is. You don't know what the finished product is. You don't know what the final draft is going to look like. And you are allowing yourself to be a little lost in that process. And that is is because we're often very blind to what it is that we need or where it is that we're going. And that getting lost, letting go, is essential to arrive at a place that we didn't have in mind, but that actually is the place we want in some ways. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. That was the voice of Kevin Kelly, author, blogger, photographer, and... Well, I have an honorary title that I that I use myself, oh. which is Senior Maverick at Wired Magazine. Cool. A magazine that I co-founded uh, 30 years ago. In line with his work at Wired, Kevin Kelly has written often about technology and the future. We were enthralled by his 2016 book, The Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. Kelly has a gift for distillation, and it not only shines in his futurist writing, but in his most recent book, Excellent Advice for Living, Wisdom I Wish I'd Known Earlier. The book is a collection of pithy bits of wisdom, some invented and some cobbled together from Kelly's extensive breadth of knowledge. The book evolved from yearly lists of advice that Kelly had been putting out on his blog each year on his birthday. We'd been captivated by those lists, and when we saw that he'd refined, polished, and expanded his humble wisdom into a book, we had to have him on the podcast. But before getting into the heart of his book, we wanted to hear about his personal experience feeling lost. And so when I'm traveling, I love to sit out without a map, and explore without much of a destination. And I will literally get in places where I have no idea where I am, not even sure how to get back. That takes me somewhere where I don't have any preconceptions. I um, have very low expectations. Where I'll find something that is usually really remarkable and fabulous and, and literally something I would not find otherwise Hmm. that could be a person it could be a thing could be an idea it could be a solution it could be something tiny so that process of setting out not knowing where you're going and deliberately heading into the unknown with the idea and that you're intentionally going to be in that state of being lost I find incredibly valuable and rejuvenating in many ways. Mm. 
It occurs to me that, one, you'd probably really love Burning Man, (laughs) and two, that It sounds like a wonderful way to live, the idea that we should always wake up every morning setting out into the unknown, which is life, and life is constantly going to be throwing things at you no matter what your plans are. So you might as well cultivate a sort of uh, openness to the things that happen, to experiences. And I wonder, what's your perspective on both the potential benefits, but also potential difficulties, challenges, or even scary things. I feel like to be able to walk out into the unknown, the reason why people don't like doing that is because they're afraid of the unknown. They're afraid of getting hurt. I don't know. How do you like walk into the unknown, walk into getting lost unafraid, or should fear be a part of it? So I'm going to answer that question, but I just want to mention one thing because you mentioned Burning Man. (laughs) Yeah. Um, My... uh, Two of my, my two older daughters were, were the very first children to be at Burning Man. Oh, cool. So we I've been going to Burning Man since the early, mid-90s. Oh, okay. You're when, old school when, Burning Man. <laughs> you know, my daughters now go, you know, as adults and stuff. So this, that is part of, of that idea of deliberate and voluntary um, getting lost. But the question about, well, should you be afraid? And I would say... Security and safety is a legitimate concern, and not everywhere in the world is equally safe. Put it, put it that way. There are certainly areas where I would feel unsafe. And I think my experience in traveling to kind of places is that I think the signals that a place is truly, you know, has a higher risk, I think are multiple, and, and that it's very rare when you suddenly find yourself in the middle of a place like that and not able to retreat. Usually there are evidences or hints that you're headed in that direction. So if I am feeling unsafe, yeah, I turn around and go in a different direction. I don't purposely walk into dangerous areas uh, uh, deliberately. However, danger is a relative term. And I will head to countries that are deemed dangerous knowing very well that they really aren't, that that, that is maybe a, a political judgment or otherwise. I mean, the number of countries that are even places that are labeled dangerous that aren't. I mean, people would consider San Francisco dangerous. And in a certain sense, there may be higher levels of personal danger there than in many other areas, but it's not really dangerous in the sense that most people are living very easily. However, there are places in the world where that's not true. You know, I wouldn't head to Ukraine, uh, particularly in the Eastern Front. That's you're asking for trouble there. So I would say it's it's there's a very reasonable way to deal with safety, and that that you should be based on your own experience in travel and your own level of threshold of accepting risk. But I would say in general, lots of places that people say are dangerous are not because if you ask the people who are living yeah. there. They always will tell you, this is a great area here, but don't go over there because that's dangerous. And you go over there and they'll say, this is really safe, but don't go where you just came from because that's dangerous. So if the people who are living there think it's dangerous, it probably is dangerous. Mm. And by the way, in most places in the world without guns, there, there's a lot of, I would say, danger in losing your possessions, but not necessarily 
for you personally. Hmm. That's not true everywhere, but there are areas where you could be pickpocketed or, or robbed of something, but you're not really going to be hurt personally. For most places, the worst that could happen is you could lose your wallet. You know, and then there's physical danger of like, you know, headed into the mountains or, or something. And there, yes, those are real risks and you should be prepared. You shouldn't casually go into more of a wilderness or adventure area. So those are real risks and getting lost there is much more consequential. And you really should um, be prepared in, in that way. But you can still get lost there if you want. You can still deliberately... Hmm. Um, head around if you're experienced in that. And so I have some experience in, in the wilderness to certain levels, and I would be comfortable doing that. But that's another skill you can kind of ease up into. Mm. You know, I, I hitchhiked uh, a lot when I was younger. And part of that hitchhiking experience is being vulnerable and asking for help which is a hard thing for some people like myself to do, to say, yeah, I need help. Can you give me a ride? And so you have to be a good receiver of things. And I met people that my correspondent for with many, many years, and they were people that I met because I was basically lost, didn't know where I was. The subtitle of Excellent Advice for Living is Wisdom I'd Wish I'd Known Earlier. And I was wondering if you could talk to me about how some of the wisdom that you impart in the book might have helped you in the past. Yeah, there's many things, some of them very practical, that I just wished I had known earlier. So one of the things I learned was if I lose an object and when I find it, I repeat to myself the thing that I learned late was would re put it back, not where I found it, but where I first looked for it. It's like, oh my God, this is so, so great. I wish I'd known that earlier. Learning how to just to say no politely without having to give reasons. Or learning to evaluate whether I'm going to accept something six months from now by asking myself, what I do if it was tomorrow morning? Those are kind of practical things that this took me a long time to, to get to or prototyping things. The value of making different drafts and iterating and making one to throw away like a first draft which is applying not just to projects like making furniture, but even to your life in terms of being able to do things in a kind of prototypical way. I think that was, again, something for me was really difficult to kind of like, I'm going to make something and go all the way and finish it and then throw it away. Making it the first time was like so arduous that throwing it away was like, what? But that's actually what you need to do to make something great is to have versions of it, make it, and then the versions that you know are actually not going to be used in order to just get there. So those are the kinds of, of, of things that I really do wish that someone had told me earlier or that I absorbed those lessons earlier. And, you know, the, the biblical things about, you know, gratitude and kindness, I think I had heard before, weren't new. In fact, I'm writing in the book, I'm just channeling the ancients there. This is timeless, timeless wisdom. And, and that I probably had heard, but what I was trying to do in the book was to condense them into a little capsule, something that could be repeated, that I could remind myself with. So being able to put it into something portable like that was part of my exercise of writing this book and 
writing them down so that I could be reminded myself. One that actually took my breath away when I was reading it, which I love because, like, I think that's the fun thing about wisdoms, especially when they're in little capsules like this, yeah. is that mm-hmm. they, in a, in a similar way to a poem, they just kind of hit you in the right moment sure. in the right way. And so I wanted to share with you the one that Please. hit me hardest. And again, like, I just sort of went <gasps> when I read it. <laughs> so it was... Forgiveness is accepting the apology that you will never get. And, you know, I've thought a lot about forgiveness, obviously, because of my circumstances. And I've heard all the things about, like, how forgiveness is something that you do for yourself, that, like, when you don't forgive, you're just delivering poison to yourself. And it's like, okay, I'm on board. Like, I'm on board. I get it. I get it. I get it. Like, I get it. And that was the one where I was like... Oh, like both. It was like a relief and a heartbreak at the same time because you just know that it's true. What what was the one that struck you? Do you have one that? Well, we can get to that, but I'd like to linger on forgiveness for a moment because sure. there's a couple other bits of wisdom in there on the subject of forgiveness. Um, obviously, this is a, a recurrent thing. And I'm curious, is that one of the pieces that you wish you'd known earlier? This, you know, accepting the apology that uh, you will never get. You know, um, a, a lot of the, the wisdom was um, a vague sensibility in me, but but it had never been articulated. And I think there's some value in articulating something down into this little um, seed that can then, as you said, can then explode later on that you can then unpack. And I think I had an intuitive sense about that that you should forgive, but I'd never really gone all the way to understand the logic of it, which is, you know, that it was a, a poison that you wanted to release. I wish I had had it explicitly articulated earlier. Mm. Hmm. I kind of was trying to do that, but maybe not knowing why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I love that, like, the one that I was thinking of wasn't even, like, a why. It was just, like, articulating what the very act of forgiveness is, which is you're sitting there being like, I deserve an apology. (laughs) And you're like, but I'm not going to get it, and I'm okay. (laughs) Like, that's what it actually is. Because, like, forgiveness is this, like, vague concept that we hear all the time, and we know that it's good for us, but what is the literal act of it doing that's it. And I was just like, damn, that was smart. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's part of what I think the other bits were joining to do. I wanted to write bits that were, one, I honestly, absolutely believed. And mm. I would, it was something I would always ask, okay, do I really believe this? Is this really true? Can I really stand by this? Secondly, like, is it too obvious or not in the way I'm saying? And thirdly would be, is it in some ways practical or useful to, yeah. to people to say. Because I, I, I want it to be something that you would have to remind yourself about and that it would have some effect if you were to make it a habit. And articulating that is is really the, the hard part, which is to say it in a few words, even though we kind of know it. Mm. Yeah, it's an exercise in poetry in a sense. Yeah. It is, it's a little bit like that. Yeah. Trying to say the unsaid but not say, say everything mm-hmm. right you know? <laughs> because there's a lot you're not saying and that part of the the art is what you don't say in fact that's a bit of advice there art is in what you leave out 
Hey listeners, thanks for tuning in. This podcast can only exist thanks to listener support. So please consider becoming a patron. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. I'm curious about if you've read or um, spent much time with a lot of the traditions of wisdom literature around the world. You know, there's the the Tao Te Ching, the Lao Tzu, Confucius. You've got biblical mm-hmm. proverbs. You've even got Stoics, Stoics yeah. right? Yeah, I, I have read lightly into some of them, um, but not very deeply into any of them, except for maybe the Bible, which I did read through twice from beginning to end. And highly recommend that everybody do that because it doesn't say what you think it says, no matter what it is that you think it says. It's very strange in many ways. But for the others, I have kind of a passing um, familiarity with them. And yes, I think a lot of this is in total alignment with those ancient traditions. And I'm sure, you know, I've gotten stuff from the Zenis mm-hmm. and from the Sufis as well as the Stoics and Confucius. I don't know what is what. And in the Bible, too, there's just no doubt that there's um, stuff here that's being repeated. And who knows who first said it? Yeah. I mean, I always thought, you know, Lao Tzu was just a guy. And there tends to be this gloss of history that we look back at these figures who wrote these books of wisdom and think, oh, what a sage. But he was just some dude who had some thoughts and put down his thoughts. and Or someone else put down his yeah, thoughts. Someone totally. else is like, yeah. what? <laughs> I find that in the modern day, people are much more hesitant to, to dare to have the audacity to say, like, here's some wisdom. Yeah, yeah. And well, it, you call it advice. That's yeah. how you get, well, it <laughs> how you get away with it. Self-help books or something <laughs> like that, right? Yeah, there's whole shelves or bourses of bookstores around the vice. And most of that advice, by the way, everybody knows that we're kind of made, not really made of atoms, we're made of stories. And so the really smart people understand that they, they tell stories about the advice, but I'm not a very good storyteller. <laughs> So practicing what I preach of not being the best, but being the only, I like to read, uh, write telegraphically. I'm a telegraphist. My reviews are very short. I tend to write in kind of a, a, a punchy, compressed, condensed way. So I decided that's what I'm going to do with mm-hmm. my advice. So one, one person that I thought was really great, they were very kind. They said, oh, yeah, it's the Bible without stories. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and the endless lists yeah. of who begat whom, begat whom. Yeah, begat. yeah, right. So, yeah, exactly. So it's so yeah. This is the storyless version of most advice, which is usually encapsulated in stories because they're very effective. Yeah. Well, I like how you've chosen to mix the very practical, learn how to tie a bowline knot, you know, with things that have much more weight towards the the biggest, yeah, yeah. unsolvable questions of existence. That's my magazine experience mm. of the mix of magazines, which is part of the joy of a magazine. Or You change the rhythm, you change the focus, you change it up. Mm. And so... Um, I have one that jumped out at me that I'm curious how you react to. Uh, the thing that made you weird as a kid could make you yeah. great as an adult if you don't lose it. And I'm wondering That's... what made you weird as a kid? Yeah, yeah. I was a maker 
we didn't call it that, didn't have a name from the very beginning. I had been making things all my life. You know, I made like huge model train layout from stuff I scavenger all over because I had no money and no big brother and nobody helped me. And then I made a nature museum hmm. based on a book I found at the library. I had made exhibits. I had kids in my neighborhood collecting stuff, samples for me, which I then would turn into exhibits of, you know, leaves, mounting butterflies it captured, preserving animals, doing the footprints in plaster, all kinds of things. And um, I went on to make, make a chemistry lab. So I, I, I just was the odd kid who was making things with ver no, was no tools. My, my dad didn't have any, mm -hmm. any tools. It was really tough. So I was very creative in that sense. And that was my weirdness. But being around Silicon Valley, I just realized a lot of these folks were, were really weird when they were growing up. <laughs> You know, like if you want a great story, the guy watched the documentary about the guy behind Elmo. All those Muppet people were weird because they were all into puppets. Mm. We were kids and they got really, really, really ragged on, really just <laughs> yeah. completely pummeled because they're a teenager and they're into puppets, right? <laughs> well, you know, Big Bird, Elmo, you know, Kermit. So, who's laughing um, now? <laughs> who's laughing? Right, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so um, the thing that made you weird, but the, the course of the thing is you can't lose it because there's tendency in schools and others to hammer out a lot of that weirdness. And it could be, you know, your own approach to life. So we tend to want to round out people. And, there, and there's a legitimate reason to be kind of, rounded in some ways, but you just don't want to be too round. Hmm. You want to have some angles, some little sharpness in yourself, because that is how you can become the only rather than just the best. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I often think in terms of the Dungeons and Dragons character sheets when I think about my yeah. own life. And I... I consider myself a. Well, there yeah. you are. You, you've just admitted to the one we, to the weird, <laughs> well, right? Well, he, he's, he's taking magic, it. Yeah. magic the game. Yeah, yeah that's. I mean, there's there's a sliver there. I'm looking back on my own weirdness as a kid, and yeah. I've often chosen to go in very different directions and follow my pursuits and passions. And I, for a while, I was a computer engineering guy, and then I went to school for poetry. I'm now I'm doing podcasting, like. Amanda and I have both like shifted directions a lot. And right. I call that being a multi-class character rather than a, a specialist, you know, rather than choosing wizard or barbarian and yeah. getting 20 levels in that, I've do a little here, do a little there. And it, one consequence is that I'm not the best at anything. Um, right. Because someone out there has spent more time doing the thing that I dabbled in. Well, maybe you're the right. best at adapting. That's actually something that I've thought about as like a skill that potentially mm -hmm. is going to be a future skill that should be something that we should teach our kids. It, it made me think, Chris and I are familiar with your work. Excellent Advice for Living is helpful for people in the present, but you also write a lot about the future. And we th we think a lot about the future. We think about AI and we think about robotics. And we're thinking about one of the pieces of advice in here is in 100 years, a lot of what we take 
to be true now will be proved to be wrong, maybe even embarrassingly wrong. So a good question to ask yourself today is, what might I be wrong about? And that's the only worry worth having. What advice do you have for future people, especially, you know, we're young parents. We're thinking a lot about how to cultivate our kids in an environment that is increasingly becoming foreign to us all. That's a good point, because even though you may think of yourself out in the audience as a digital native, Mm -hmm. you're not going to be native in another five years. Yeah. Yeah. I'm already not native. What the hell is TikTok? I don't get it. (laughs) Right. You're just not going to be native. You're going to be a newbie like the rest of us. Mm. And you're having to relearn everything. So that would be one thing that I would say is is prepare to be the newbie for the rest of your life. Mm. Always Mm. back at square one, having to learn the new thing. Now you've got to learn chat GBT and how to deal with it and so forth. So that stance of beginner mind of being back at the beginning is going to be a familiar or should become a familiar stance. I would say the one thing that schools, the one skill, the primary skill, to me, the uber skill that you want to graduate from when you graduate from school is the ability and the knowledge to know how you learn. Mm. You personally, to optimize your own learning in different categories in different ways. So that, so that learning how to learn becomes the chief skill. Mm. And meaning that when you're trying to memorize things, how, many, how much time do you need to rest in between reps? Mm. How long of a, of a sleep cycle? How many reps do you normally need? If you're learning a new concept, what are the things that you require yourself at, at your point in life to optimize your learning? I've never been taught that. Mm-hmm. I still don't know exactly how to optimize my own learning, even though I'm a lifelong learner and that's what I do. I still don't know. I would love to be tested. I would love to to be trained mm. to optimize my learning even more. But we're graduating kids that have no idea at all. And that is really the only skill we're going to have is because whatever, you, whatever your kids, your children's occupation is, I would say has not been invented yet. Right. So you can't really train them for that. You have to just prepare them to learn on their own. All my three adult, young adult kids, first of all, none of them are doing anything close to what they majored in. (laughs) And secondly, they're not doing anything that even had a name Mm. until recently. And so they're going to make it only if they're able to continue to learn and if they can get better at it themselves. Yeah. Yeah, part of that in a in a changing landscape and a, and one in which is changing at an ever greater rate. You know, we've been getting used to pivoting in what a, what our own you know, I after poetry sure. school I went into fiction and I became a novelist and wrote a couple novels mm-hmm. and Amanda wrote a memoir and and at a time both of us thought being book writers was going to be our primary thing. Mm-hmm. And then that shifted and, right. you know, and I'm thinking that I'm, I'm expecting shifts to come and a, a great question. One of the, these other bits of wisdom in here that really jumped out at me was you're never too young to wonder why am I still doing this? <laughs> you need to have an excellent answer because we can get easily caught up in the, 
in the rhythms and habits of the way we do things. And, and like, why yeah. am I still writing books? Should I be writing books or should I be channeling my creativity into something else? I love that you have to have an right. excellent answer, not even an <laughs> yeah, 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 answer. Yeah, yeah. You need to have an excellent <laughs> answer. Right. I have been saying for several years that I'm not going to write any more books. And what I meant by that was uh, no more um, native books, meaning that, like, and this was an example because this didn't start off as a book. It was, blog posts. It's native digitally. It's made into a book because it's handy, but that, that's a kind of a derivative of its native medium, which was online. And for me, increasingly, the world is moving images to the video and TikToks in the world, and that's where the audience is. The, really, the only place where there's a growing audience is on YouTube. Hmm. The rest of them are kind of flat, fairly flat. It's the, the the moving image, YouTube, and then after that will be a kind of 3D world. That's where the young adults are putting their attention. They're not really reading books. They're reading online, and they're spending their discretionary time on YouTube like I do. And so increasing even the podcast like yourself, you're recording some video. Why? Because amazingly, there's people who listen to podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> on video so that's where i want so that's where i want to be i want to be where the audience is and so so you have to ask yourself you know i have to have a good reason for doing a book now you just can't assume that we'll do a book it's i know how to do a book i can do it with my eyes closed i find it really difficult to do video editing and stuff but that's again i have to learn a new set of skills because that's where the audience is going to be. Kind of tiring, huh? Oh, my God. Exhausting. It's exhausting. <laughs> Especially when you think, like, we're just trying to get by here. Like, isn't there a time where we yeah. get to relax? But it actually reminds me. No, there is no. not going to be. You can't rub your hands and say you figured everything out. I've reached a destination. I know what I'm about. Mm. I have been around what the outside world would call the most successful people in the world. And it's amazing that they're still asking the same question of what do I want to do when I grow up? You know, basically, mm. what, what am I, what, 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 and having a billion dollars or having fame does not answer the question. Mm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> does not answer the question. And so they're still on that journey of trying to figure it out. And, and every single one of them, their life, their path looks like this crazy meandering things with all these back turns and right turns and about face and everything. And they look like they're hopscotching from one thing to another. And that is everybody. It's not just your life. It's not just my life. It's most people mm -hmm. who have some degree of success. That's what their life is. And they are accumulating a bunch of different experiences and skills to produce this thing that nobody else could get to because their path there is so so laborious and meandering and crazy that no, it's so, too improbable for anybody mm. else to kind of arrive there. And I always think about, you know, Steve Jobs goofing off at Reed College, doing things he only wanted to do, like taking a calligraphy class, mm. which later on became this essential thing for him to kind of do fonts on the, the, the Mac, only because he was wasting time taking calligraphy class that had no real obvious import. But there it was. It was the thing that 
only he could have gotten to. Hmm. Another one I loved was this very simple one. Um, if you don't, I don't, I don't remember the exact wording, but like if you don't fall occasionally, you're just coasting, something like that. Mm -hmm. and, yes. and I think about someone like Steve Jobs and some epic falls in the trajectory of his career and, and of Apple. Right. Can yeah. you imagine being fired from a company that you founded? Yeah. Right? He puts his life into it. This remarkable achievement, starting one of the first computer, personal computer companies, and then getting fired. <laughs> and so, so one of the questions that wasn't answered by Walt Isaacson's biography was, what was the difference? I mean, he was fired f for the company, and then he comes back, and he does this heroic work. So what, what changed mm. between the time when he was fired from Apple and came back? And I think I know what the answer was. Enlighten us. The answer was he got married and had a family. Mm. He became human. He was just way too mean and... Mm, not empathetic enough, mm -hmm. but he became kind of domesticated mm -hmm. by his family that took enough of the edge off of his roughness mm -hmm. that, that he could harness his other geniuses. Mm -hmm. And so that was the difference. That's what it took. Um, not that he completely became a nice person all the time, but it was enough that he could get some great things done. So people do change in that course of their life. You can get better at it. And I think we all start off at different levels, but we can always improve mm. in whatever it is, whether it's kindness or gratitude or empathy or communication. I mean, whatever, we, we can all improve mm -hmm. in some direction. Do you have any examples from your own life of falling and getting back up again? Yeah, I mean, there's stuff that we tried that doesn't work. I, I spent 11 years on a graphic novel, which we did kickstart and produce, but it never connected. Mm -hmm. There's that kind of, of failure. There's trying things that don't work. In part, I think what the prototyping your life idea, the advice I give is what I call failure management. Mm. What you really want to do is you want to manage your failures so you have lots of little constant failures rather than one mm. big catastrophic failure mm. every now and then. And that's sort of what democracy is in some ways. That's sort of what innovation processes, that's what science and evolution is about. Man, to use the word adapting, you're constantly adapting and you are allowing failures like getting lost or other things to stay small, because if you don't, then what happens, you just go along mm. and you have that adjustment later on when it's a big thing. It's like, okay, I'm going to, instead of prototyping thing, we're going to start small with a little kind of hobby or do business for six months and see what happens. Like, I'm going to write a five-year business plan. I'm going to raise a million dollars. We're going to go for it. And then it, if it doesn't work, that's a huge failure. Mm -hmm. Whereas... If you're going to say, well, I'll see how far I can do with $1,000 and see what happens, 
and then we'll iterate our way, prototype our way forward, then you're managing the failure because mm. you're still likely to fail, but it's not a big failure. And that's, I think, one of the greatest inventions of Silicon Valley was demoralizing failure mm. so that until recently, failure throughout the world, if you failed a class or you failed in the business, it was a disgrace. Mm. It was a disgrace. And Silicon Valley and science were saying, actually, it's essential. It's part of the process. You want to fail forward. Mm. You want to fail with learning. You want to use that, and you are trying to manage it by making it frequent yeah. and, and purposeful and deliberate. And with that kind of failure, it's not a disgrace. It's actually progress. I'm sure you've heard Samuel Beckett's quip on that about- I haven't. What's, how's it go? Fail better. Okay. Fail like better. That. Fail better. Yeah. In the history of Wired Magazine, where did the magazine ever stumble notably, or did its existence or future ever get imperiled along the way? <laughs> the entire time. <laughs> there was one long near-death experience. Oh, my God. In fact, there was many times when it was like, we don't think we can make payroll. Hmm. And that's, by the way, it's very typical of startups, is they lurch from one near-death experience to another. And always on the edge. And then, you know, most of them don't survive because mm -hmm. they've had a near death that became death. And um, so Wired was very much like that. And in fact, one of the things that surprised me was it's a monthly magazine. And literally every single month, it seemed like it was a miracle <laughs> that we got the magazine out by the deadline. Every single time you would think after years and years of doing this every month, it would become like a formula. You know, you get up to Friday night and whatever before the deadline and everybody would go home. But no, it was an all-nighter the night before. It was <laughs> this crazy, how can we possibly get there? And, and in, thought, in part, it was probably because we were continually to raise the bar on what we accepted. It was always a near, near death in terms of not making the deadline. You are only as young as the last time you changed your mind. That's another of yeah. our favorites. I have to I have to attribute that to Tim Leary, hmm. who taught me that. Changing my mind is, is one of the things I travel for. Going back to what you were saying about being wrong, I don't want to be wrong. So part of the way of not being wrong is being able to change your mind. And it's hard as you get older, um, but... Part of that starts with me questioning, trying to have to question things, saying, I know that I'm wrong about something that would be embarrassingly ridiculous later on, but what is it? And so I'm mm. trying to re-examine things, trying to listen to people that I don't agree with to see if I am wrong about that. And occasionally I, I am, and I've changed my mind here and there. And I think it's Another skill that we should graduate with is our ability to change your mind. One mm. of the things I think I mentioned a, a bit of advice in the book was you don't want your identity to be wrapped up in your opinions mm. because then you can't change them. Mm. You want your identity to be wrapped up in your values, your character. Mm. 
I wanted to see if there was like any big things that you had ever changed your mind about, because a big one for me was just the criminal justice system. (laughs) I had basically just took it for granted and just assumed that all people who go to jail are bad people. It's very clear cut. And obviously, it's a lot more complicated than that. And I think the, the sort of opinion that I've come to as a result of thinking really deeply about these issues that I still sort of come into conflict with people about because I feel like they haven't actually thought as much mm-hmm. about this. It's one of those, maybe in a hundred years, this is going to be incredibly bar- embarrassing for everyone. Right. But the idea that like we're entitled to punish people like systematically, yeah. we're entitled to hurt people. Yeah. Um, yeah as a system (laughs) is something that now to me seems incredibly psychopathic, but it's just like the predominant thing that people think. And I still feel a little bit like I'm living 100 years in the future, just about this one particular issue. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. And I'm, I'm curious to know if you have anything like that, where you're just like, well, I guess I'll be dead when people figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 I think you're right. The idea that punishment is, is the best response to, to crime, I, I think you're right. That could absolutely, as a society, change over time. Um, but that is something that we don't question for, for most people. They never even think about question. This seems so natural. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of things. I mean, if I look back to my much younger self, like a lot of people, I changed my mind about, um, you know, gays. Mm. And because I think, like a lot of people, we just assume that that was a choice. That was a, a choice. And then once you understand that, okay, you can change your mind about that. I was recently changing my mind about the Civil War. Hmm. Hmm. Given, you know, what we see with Taiwan and Ukraine, I kind of decided that I thought that the Union should let the South succeed. Interesting. If they really were choosing to, what right do we have to force them? And all the millions of people die. It was like, I don't think that was a good idea. I think we should have left, let the South if they willingly chose and voted to succeed, to succeed. Wow, way to open a can of worms right at the end here. Like, how do you so, unpack that? <laughs> I'm probably speaking ignorance. I haven't done the research to know. But uh, there were people like Henry David Thoreau who were, who were, the, um, were anti-war, mm. anti-Civil War, war. Mm. And so... Um, you know, it's mixed up in so many things. But anyway, well, that's an opinion, yeah. right? That's not, a, that's not a value. I'm not going to die on that hill. That's <laughs> fascinating because I never even thought to question that. Like yeah, yeah. whether or not going to war against ourselves was a good idea. <laughs> like, exactly, right. There's, there's lots of things talking about the future. I think over the long term, we will come back and consider the fact that we had to eat animal flesh, mm. kill animals for food. It's going to be one of those things that may ultimately be kind of embarrassing. I have that feeling, too, especially just like the factory farming thing. Like, we yeah, just yeah, totally like, subjugated just like, and uh, made animals yeah. suffer. That's a bad yeah, that's, look. Right. That, <laughs> that seems like that's not going to survive, mm-hmm. particularly if we can make lab-grown animal meat. Yeah. So, deathless meat. I think the meat can be around, but deathless meat. 
So I think there's a bunch of things that we assume and, and have never really kind of examined. Uh, one of the things I hope for, I don't know how likely it is, but I hope for the universal right of migration, mm. huh. meaning that you, if you're born in this planet, you should be able to live anywhere on this planet if you follow local rules and mm. pay taxes huh. and all that kind of stuff. So it's like, just like we have in the States, right? I mean, imagine if we had borders at every one of our states. It's just totally crazy. So um, why, I mean, I know there's reason, but th there should be a point where anybody can live anywhere they want on this planet if you follow the local rules. Mm. And uh, the kind of impetus to everybody go one place, that will all self-correct mm -hmm. very, very mm. quickly. Right. People are not going to go where... They don't want to go. Um, and they're not going to stay where they don't want to stay. They're not going to stay. <laughs> and, so, uh, and, and then I changed my mind about war, too. Mm. Hmm. I actually believe that it's possible to eliminate war. Hmm. I'm, a, I'm not a pacifist. I'm a policifist. And a policifist meaning the whole purpose of police and, and the judicial system is you have a third-party impartial ad address, whatever the consequences are. So if someone hurts you... You don't have the right to hit back mm -hmm. because it, that just starts the feud mm -hmm. and it never goes. But we do that with nations. We have this weird idea that a nation is allowed to hit back. Mm. Oh, because they did something to us that so we can do anything we want in response to that. If we have the power. Just, and then if you don't have the right, power, then exactly, you're just screwed. Right. But, but that's just, yeah, that's just the strong man. So that just, that just makes cycles and cycles. Of, of conflict. But what you want to have is you want to have the police mm. come in and say, okay, you accuse this, we'll, we'll adjudicate this, and there'll be, a, there'll be consequences to, to whoever is in the fault. And that is, and so that's why we sort of don't have wars on this continent. Mm. It's because we have police who are metting out whatever innate human mm. desire we have for justice. Well, they have to be brought to justice. But we're not allowed, we, the aggrieved, are not allowed to do that. Right. So, but we do permit that in war, which is hmm. silly. And so I believe that we can evolve to the point where we can actually eliminate war on the planet. There'll be armed conflict, just like having police doesn't stop crime. It just really <laughs> reduces the consequences of it. And the same thing, there'll be armed conflict, but there will not necessarily be war. So maybe to wrap this up, I want to get your take on like, what is wisdom? Like what makes something yeah. a piece of wisdom? What makes one of your pithy sayings qualify as, as wisdom? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say it's condensed, articulated guidance. I say the last piece of advice in the book that these are not laws. It's not a law of the universe. It's much more of a pointing in a direction where you're trying to elevate the good truth and, and beautiful, there is a sense of it being transmittable, memorable, a reminder, a reminder of the direction that would be best for you. Hmm. And it's usually born out of experience. And a lot of the wisdom that I'm writing this book is based on my experience over time and the experience of others, so I don't have to make all the same mistakes. Yes. But so I would say it's a distilled, condensed pointing of a direction hmm. that will probably lead to the better you. Yeah. 
distilled experience. I mean, that's language, right? That's the the power of yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the poetry. Yeah. Maybe it's poetic. I don't know. Maybe it's a poetic. Well, you know, um, a, a poetry teacher of mine once described poetry uh, or a poem as a machine made of words that's designed to go off in the chest. Um, which, wow, which I love. I love that. Right? And I think a lot of these little bits of wisdom that that description applies as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. that's interesting. So maybe, maybe a, a wisdom is something that looks like for your mind, but it's really for your heart. Mm. Right. It's a proverb that you can read that, that affects your heart. Mm. But yeah, I, I think you're right. You're onto something. Mm. I really appreciate that. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Kevin. Well, thank you. It was really lovely to meet you both. I really enjoyed this chat, and I hope I wasn't too weird. Hardly, hardly. You can find all of Kevin Kelly's work at kk.org. And check out his newest book, Excellent Advice for Living, available wherever books are sold. And how can you find what you don't know you're looking for unless you get lost with us? Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. You can learn more about our work and how to support it at knoxrobinson.com. And here's one last bit of wisdom. The energy you put out into the world comes back to you. So share what you love with your friends and with the world. We hope Labyrinths is one of those things you love. Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. This episode was written and produced by us with editing and sound design by Josh Thane and theme music by Josh Budo Karp. Hold it right there. Let me hear your ad. These aren't the ads you're looking for. This podcast is listener-supported. This podcast is listener-supported. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson.